0: Psalm 23, 1 through 3 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Why does the Lord protect his sheep, taking them to green pastures? Why does he restore our soul and lead us beside still waters? for his name's sake, for his reputation, to display his character. When people think of the gospel, they often think about it being the good news of how we can go to heaven. What if it's not primarily about that? A.W. Tozer said, "...the gospel, in its scriptural context, puts the glory of God first and the salvation of man second. The last two episodes, I've been discussing the glory of God. I've defined the glory of God as the display of his attributes. When we see God's glory, he is revealing himself to us in some way. In the throne room of God, Isaiah saw angels crying out. In Isaiah 6, 3, it says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Psalm 19.1, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the glory of the Lord, especially in the Old Testament, is often expressed in things which appeal to the senses. The glory of the Lord is displayed with great clouds, fire, fire, Rainbows, bright light, flashes of lightning, and peals of thunder, the glory of Lord of the Lord is displayed in his rescue of the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and as he gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai in exodus twenty four sixteen through seventeen says this, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So, uh, Louis Sperry Schaefer, he founded Dallas Theological Seminary, he says this The glory of God is all his attributes added together and raised to the nth degree. R.C. Sproul says the glory of God refers to who God is, not what he does. So, when I say the glory of God is the display of his attributes, his attributes, his character, his reputation, who God is, he is displaying that. In His glory, His His glory is like the outward display of of who He truly is. So that's uh, again, that's just a refresher on what is the glory of God. I also talked about what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three says, "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." So last week I argued that falling short of the glory of God is failing to display the attributes of God. So uh, one way to think about sin is that we misrepresent God in our sin. We, We fail to glorify God when we dishonor him. This could be through things like idolatry or disobedience to God. We fail to glorify God in our actions when we sin against others. When we lie, we are failing to represent God's truthfulness. We were made in the image of God to represent him, so so when we lie, we are misrepresenting who God is, his attributes. Um, now in for Romans three twenty three, uh, this is not just my own thoughts here, Douglas Moo, in his commentary uh, on Romans, on this very verse, he comments Paul then is indicating that all people fail to exhibit that being like God for which they were created. So they are falling short of the glory of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about uh, falling short of the glory of God uh, and distorting the image of God. He says this, quote, This image of God which was put upon man, this imprint of God's own being, consists partly in his intellect and understanding, his power to reason, to look at himself objectively, and his capacity for communion with God. That has been defaced. Not only that, man was made Lord of the creation, but he has lost much of this as the result of the fall and because of sin, and he is no longer like God. The image of God is not totally destroyed, but it is terribly defaced, so much so that man is no longer recognizable as one that was made in the image of God. He is ungodly. All right, so that's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So because God is holy and righteous, our sin deserves his wrath. But furthermore, because God is holy and righteous, he must pour out his wrath on sinners. God's holiness will not let a single sin go free. So when God punishes sinners, he is glorified. We see his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection, his goodness and love. So he is glorified in punishing sinners because those attributes are shown, are are put on display. Now you may be asking, how is sending sinners to hell a display of God's love and goodness? Well, the opposite of love is hate, and the opposite of good is bad or evil. So if you love something because of that love, you hate what opposes it. So because I love my wife, I hate when people mistreat her. I desire good things for my family, and so I despise bad or evil things for my family. So God's love for himself, for his own character, again, we are created to represent him. So his love for for himself, and again, that that love for himself is not a wrong or bad thing um, because he is God and we are not God. So you can't think of God as just another human up there, Um, God is the creator of all things. He's eternal. He is a different being than us. And so because of who God is, it is perfectly right and good for all of creation for God to have a a self-love. And so uh, out of God's love for himself and his holiness, his true character, he will punish Those who misrepresent him, which is all of us, all have sinned. We were created in God's image, and we've sinned against that. So because he is good, he hates those who do evil. Um, Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5 says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. And listen to this phrase, you, that is, you, God, Hate all evildoers, so a lot of people say that God hates the sin but loves the sinner, but here it says God hates all evildoers, all people who do evil. God hates them, all right. And so that's a a, a tough verse there, but that's that's the way God, because of his holiness, he hates those who do evil. So God would be holy, good, and loving if he condemned every sinner to hell. Now, thank goodness we have passages like this, Ephesians 2, verses four through seven, "'But God, being rich in mercy "'because of the great love with which he loved us, "'even when we were dead in our trespasses,' made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, so so here's here's the purpose here of God being rich in mercy and raising us up, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ, all right? So, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God's glory is best seen in the gospel. It's so easy to turn the gospel into something about us. It's, it's subtle, but it's massive at the same time. Yes, the gospel is the good news about how we can go to heaven, but it is first about the glory of God, who God truly is. The, the gospel is really a beautiful display of the nature and character of God. Again, it reveals who God is. Let me remind you of the quote from A.W. Tozer I started this episode off with. Quote, the gospel in its scriptural context puts the glory of God first and the salvation of man second. And John Piper has an awesome quote about the gospel as well. And and this, this is really the, the core of these episodes here is getting this concept across that the the gospel is primarily about the glory of God. When we focus on the glory of God, so many other things line up in, in our life. And so John Piper says this, quote, the ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savoring the beauty and value of God. God's wrath and our sin obstruct that vision and that pleasure. The removal of this wrath and this rebellion is what the gospel is for. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to our seeing it and savoring it as our highest treasure. So again, that's that's what I'm aiming to do here as we focus on the glory of God. So, the gospel message starts with creation. God is our creator. He created us with a purpose, and because we have failed in that purpose, we are sinners who deserve the judgment of God. I've already discussed all this in previous weeks, um, so let me go on with. I've, you know, the last two weeks I've been uh, focusing on the verse for all, Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The next part of that is and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So again, in this verse, Romans 3, 24, the grace of God is glorified in the gospel. In Ephesians 1, the gospel is to the praise of his glorious grace. And in in Ephesians chapter 2, it is to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so... Again, God would have been perfectly just and right and good in condemning every person to hell for eternity because all have sinned. But because of who God is, He will display His grace. And how does He do this? By justifying sinners as a gift. We do not deserve to be justified, but because of who God is, to show us His glory, He justifies us. Now, what is justification? This is J.I. Packer's definition. Justification is God's act of remitting the sins of guilty men and accounting them righteous freely by his grace through faith in Christ on the ground, not of their own works, but of the representative law-keeping and redemptive bloodshedding of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. So that is a bit complex but it, that it's a great definition. So, let me simplify it. When you think about justification, think about a courtroom. God is the judge and you are the guilty criminal. In justification, God declares you legally righteous in his sight. So, you are not considered a guilty sinner anymore. You are declared by God to be positively righteous. Now, these are this is a legal declaration. So, A Christian is justified by God, but it does not mean that they can't sin anymore or that they don't sin anymore. It is a legal declaration. It's our legal standing in God's divine courtroom. For the Christian, you are justified. You are declared righteous. Now, this is the the part that a lot of people don't understand about justification. Justification does not only remove our sin, but God's justification declares that you are perfectly righteous. It's not just that as a criminal you have been forgiven. You are actually declared positively righteous as if you are a perfect law-abiding citizen, okay? Um, John Blanchard says this, in justification, the sinner is not only pardoned, he is promoted, so ju- in in justification, it's not like a criminal who like gets away on a technicality and and they're so technically they're innocent, but the judge kind of you know squints an eye at him as if to say I've got my eye on you and one slip up and and you're mine you know no in justification we are declared righteous. So where does this righteousness come from? Our righteousness is not based off of our own good works or our own merits. Rather, it is given or imputed to us. So it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us. One of the go-to passages about this imputed righteousness or, or righteousness that is, that is given to us is in Romans 4. So Paul refers to Abraham and, and David, and he says this, Romans 4 verses 1 through 8, "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh?' For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So several times in this passage, and I've obviously emphasized it, you heard the phrase like counted as righteous or um, at the very end, whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is where we get the idea of imputed righteousness. So uh, we've defined justification. Now we've got to define imputation. What does it mean to have imputed righteousness? Uh, A great little book that I have is called the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms. So here's how it defines uh, imputation. Imputation is a transfer of of benefit or harm from one individual to another. In theology, imputation may be used negative, negatively to refer to the transfer of the sin and guilt of Adam to the rest of humankind. Positively, imputation refers to the righteousness of Christ being transferred to those who believe on him for salvation. So, in justification, What's happening is, is God in the divine courtroom of God, God is looking at us and he is justifying us. He is declaring us righteous. And, and so when and the righteousness that we have is not our own good works, we, we didn't earn our own righteousness. The righteousness that we have was given to us by Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the only perfect man. He perfectly obeyed God the Father all the way to death. And so that that perfect righteousness that Jesus earned is given to us. It is counted to us as our, as if it was our own righteousness. So when God looks at us in that courtroom, he looks at us as if we're we as if he's judging Jesus. The the perfect works of Jesus Christ. So God sees us as he would see Jesus. And Jesus trades places with us. Jesus takes our sin on himself and bears the punishment for our sin. That's the the grounds for our justification. It's Jesus Christ. So, a lot of people struggle, though, with this idea of imputation um, especially when in a negative sense, so this pocket dictionary of theological terms it says imputation may be used negatively to refer to the transfer of the sin and guilt of Adam to the rest of humankind, so you know people people struggle with that you know one man sinned, and so now i you know I inherit this sin nature, um, but the people who who struggle with that and and even reject the idea. of original sin and sin being passed down from Adam, the problem with rejecting that is that it's against what the Bible teaches. and, And you're also cutting yourself off from the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 5 deals with this subject. So Romans 5 verses 17 through 19 says, for if because of one man's trespass, that's talking about Adam, death reigned through that one man, So if you have a problem with sin being imputed to us from Adam, then you also have a problem with the way that we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, all of this, even though I'm getting into the the terminology and things like this, all of this is teaching us about the, the character of God, the glory of God, the display of his attributes, and so in in justification we are learning about the the true attributes of God. That's what I want us to focus on. And so again, in in justification we are declared righteous. Jesus basically trades places with us. That's an easy way to think about it. He takes our sin and the punishment for our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. So the, the important thing, the thing that a lot of people forget is they think of justification as just simply our sins being forgiven. But no, we stand before God in the perfection, the, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that is credited to our account. It is, it is imputed to us. No verse covers this better than 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now, that's justification. In injustification, God justifies us as wicked sinners. And because Jesus trades places with us, Jesus Christ is condemned on on our account. This poses a major problem because in the Old Testament, Proverbs 17 15 says this He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So this verse has two different phrases, both of which are an abomination to the Lord. That's a harsh word, an abomination. So one, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Does God justify the wicked in just in our justification? Yes, we are wicked, and God justifies us. And then also in Proverbs 17, 15, he who condemns the righteous is an abomination to the Lord. Is Jesus Christ righteous and was he condemned on our behalf? Yes. And that also is an abomination to the Lord. So how can a holy and just perfect god justify wicked sinners condemn jesus christ who is righteous and yet maintain his perfection is this not a problem for god well obviously i'm a christian so spoiler alert next next few episodes it's not a problem for god but i'll explain how and why and and in this again we see the beauty and the glory of god his his attributes displayed in all of their perfection all right now i've i've been uh commenting on Romans 3:23 and i read 24 today as well remember our purpose here in looking at the the gospel in this passage in in Romans 3 is to be god centered So God's glory is best seen in the gospel. God is showing us his character and his attributes. And so here's our closing verse. It's the the full passage here, Romans 3, 23 through 26. And we'll talk more about this in the next few weeks. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus